word that defy a coherent outline. This is one of those texts. <laughs> Only once before in my life have I ever been encountered with a portion of God's word that I could not outline in a coherent and understandable manner. It's this one and the other one is Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. If you know that text, you know what I mean. So I've given you a, an outline that I stole from an old Dutch theologian named Petrus van Maastricht who insisted that all sermons ought to be preached this way. The exegetical part, where we explain the text, the doctrinal part, where we consider what it means, and the practical part, where we figure out what we do with this text. And so that is the outline that we will follow together this morning through these six magnanimous and powerful verses from Isaiah. One may rightly label chapter 51 through chapter 55 of Isaiah as the New Exodus chapters of Isaiah. For here the prophet appropriates the language of Moses as he describes the Exodus through this conquest narrative that we see in primarily Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And Isaiah's goal is to recapitulate these historical events from the life of the nation of Israel in what we might call an eschatological framework. In other words... Isaiah 51 through 55 shows us Isaiah looking forward to the future day when the true and better Moses leads the people of God again out of their bonds of slavery as he did in the Exodus, but this time not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin itself. We saw two weeks ago that Yahweh is preparing his servant, the true and better Moses. Indeed, he is preparing Christ himself to lead his people home. And last week, we saw Isaiah sounding the call, much like the Israelite elders must have done on the morning after that first Passover. Awake! Awake! It is time to march. We are going to the new promised land, to the heavenly Zion, a land flowing eternally with milk and honey. And so Isaiah commands the people, just as Moses did in the first Exodus, to depart and go out from Egypt. 52.11. Touch nothing unclean. Purify yourself of your filth and trust that just as God led and guarded his people with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, hemming them in behind and before, so also he will lead them as they exit their Egypt in a new exodus. As we come to verse 13 then, Isaiah is following the story of Exodus. He's following the trail of Moses. Or perhaps more accurately, Isaiah is tracing the trail of the Exodus as it should have been. Without the disobedience of Israel, Isaiah skips, as it were, the disobedience at Sinai and the wandering in the wilderness and instead drops us on the trail six months down the line in the Jewish calendar at Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. If the first 12 verses of chapter 52 evoke images in our mind of the book of Exodus, then certainly the last three verses ought to invoke images of the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 16, and we'll look at Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus 16 in a moment. So with that being said, 
Let's consider Isaiah's prelude to atonement. The word of God says this, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance, that we should desire him. He was despised, forsaken of men, and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So reads the word of the true and living God. Isaiah begins this section with a standard transitional phrase of his, behold. We might also say, look, what is Isaiah doing here? He's refocusing our attention as readers on the servant. Who must our eyes be fixed on? The servant. Imagine with me for a moment. You're an Israelite. You're marching out of Egypt in the Exodus. It's early in the morning. You are laden down with some Egyptian gold, which you didn't really steal. They gave it to you willingly, according to the command of God. And you're laden down, and there's two million of you, and you're marching, right? And you're following sort of the crowd. And you come up to a hill, and maybe you're 100 yards away from this hill or so. And at the front of the nation, there's Moses. And maybe I'm just a random Israelite. I've never actually seen the guy. I've only heard about him. And now I see him for the first time. And what is Isaiah calling us to do then? In the same way that those Israelites would have looked, behold, and seen Moses leading them out of Egypt and into the promised land. So we must behold and look to the servant who leads us out of Egypt and into our promised land. Awake, people of God. It's time to go to the promised land. And as you depart, as you march, who are your eyes fixed on? the servant of God. For Israel then, it was Moses. For Isaiah and for us, it is Christ. Isaiah shows us a glorious Christ here. What does the text say? Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This servant is one who has succeeded in his mission and purpose. That word prosper there could rightly be translated succeed. Isaiah is calling us then to look, to behold, to see with our eyes the servant who has succeeded, who has triumphed, and who has emerged victorious. Just as Moses led the people of Israel to victory over Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, king of Heshbon, in Deuteronomy 4, so Yahweh's true and better servant will lead his people out of bondage and into victory. What does the apostle say? For we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. 
the people of the servant will prosper because the servant himself has prospered. Success, triumph are ours because it was first his. He is our conquering shepherd king. This prosperity has a threefold look to it for Isaiah in this second line. He will be high, he will be lifted up, he will be greatly exalted. And this is a rich picture for Isaiah, one that is painted with the full palette of the Old Testament. He is bringing together at least two images here. There might be more, but at least two, melding them into one here as we will see. The first image is that of the bronze serpent in the wilderness. You can write down Numbers 21 if you want to check this story out later. Let me read the the blazing core of this story to you now. And the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh, we ask that he may remove the serpents from us. And what had happened is Israel had sinned and there's a whole bunch of serpents coming in and biting the people and they were poisonous and they were dying. And Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, a a, a tall stick. And it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at that serpent will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and what did he do with it? He lifted it up, set it on the standard, and it happened that if the serpent bit bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent he lived and jesus picked up on this in john 3 when he said just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so also the son of man must be lifted up and they didn't know what he was talking about but what jesus intended for us to see is that just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness he would be lifted up on the cross and just as israel looked to the lifted up bronze serpent and received salvation and healing so we look at not the serpent but the servant lifted up on the cross for our salvation and our healing Isaiah is using some more language that ought to be familiar to us if we are familiar at all with the book of Isaiah. Not only is this the lifting up of Christ on the cross, this is the lifting up of Christ into the throne room of heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw who here? Yahweh, seated on the throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The servant of Yahweh is glorious. He shares in the glory of Yahweh himself. We would say that Christ shares in the glory of his Father. But Isaiah here in these verses couples the servant's glory, exaltation, and prosperity in this bronze serpent and throne room motif with the servant's humiliation. The servant cannot achieve prosperity, glory, and exaltation without first being humiliated. There is no glory without the humiliation. There is no exaltation without the suffering. You cannot be lifted up to the throne without first being lifted up on the cross. 
only by suffering will the servant gain glory. The servant will sit in the throne room. The angels will bow before him and cry, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and wisdom and glory and might. But this exaltation must be preceded by his humiliation. Humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Isaiah moves to verse 14, almost in the same breath as verse 13, declaring that in the midst of the servant's prosperity and success, his appearance will be marred. Marred to the point that people are appalled at his appearance, just as many were appalled at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah is now taking the Exodus pattern in a new direction. Not only is this servant the shepherd conqueror, like Moses was. He is now, for Isaiah, also becoming the atoning sacrifice, the goat of Yom Kippur, which is Hebrew for day of atonement. Isaiah is now revealing to Israel and to us exactly what must take place. The promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the head crusher, will conquer. He will succeed. He will prosper. He will fulfill what God promised to Eve and to Noah and to Abraham and to David and to Solomon, but he will not do it first as a conquering king. No, he will do it as a sacrificial lamb. The nature of the servant's work will not be glorious as we might conceive of glory. People will be appalled at him, appalled at what he must suffer to accomplish atonement. His appearance will be marred and disfigured to the point of being unrecognizable. His suffering will be like that of the people of Israel, only to a greater degree. For the marring and disfigurement will be, what does the text say, more than any man greater than any experienced by the sons of men. For this servant will experience the fullness of the wrath of God. Isaiah makes the implicit reference to the day of, the, to the day of atonement explicit in verse 15. What does the text say? Thus he will sprinkle many nations. As the servant suffers, as he is marred and disfigured, it is not arbitrary, it is not random. His suffering has purpose. His marring, his disfigurement has purpose. What is that purpose? According to verse 15, the purpose of the disfigurement and the marring is to sprinkle the nations. What does that mean? Sprinkle the nations. You think the imagery is strange, you are not wrong. The imagery is strange. This word sprinkle only occurs one other place in the entire Old Testament. And thankfully, that one place gives us immense clarity into what Isaiah intends for us to understand about the servant here. The only other time this word occurs in the entire Bible is Leviticus 16. The sprinkling of the blood of a bull and of a goat Same word, sprinkle. That sprinkling is central to the atonement process 
we look at the sacrifices offered by the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, the Israelite Day of Atonement. Isaiah's imagery becomes a little clearer. The marring and disfigurement of the servant is actually the marring and disfigurement of death. Not only will he be beaten and punished beyond recognition, he will be beaten and punished to the point of death, and that death is the death of atonement. Just as the blood of the bull and goat was sprinkled upon the mercy seat to make atonement for the nation of Israel, so also the blood of the servant will be sprinkled upon the nations to make atonement for all of God's people throughout all nations. And as the servant sheds his own blood, sprinkling it on the nations in fulfillment of the ritual of the Leviticult, not only does it shock and appall the watching world in verse 14, in verse 15, it silences the watching world. For in the moment of sacrifice, just as the nation of Israel would have fallen silent as the priest enters into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his leg and bells tied around his waist in case he failed in the holy presence of God and died, they must be silent. Kings and nations must shut their mouths at the sight of the suffering servant. The servant brings Psalm 2 into striking resolution. What does Psalm 2 say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. We might say against Yahweh and against his servant. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. There's the words of Yahweh. Now come the words of the servant in Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations to you as an inheritance. And the ends of the earth is your possession. What shall you do with them? The servant says, Psalm 2, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed then are all who take refuge in him. Isaiah weaves the themes of Psalm 2 into this verse 52 15 the twist for isaiah is this the act of atoning death 
this blood that sprinkles the nations is the very act that silences the vain, raging, and foolish plots and meditations of the kings of the earth. The greatest act of the servant, the son of God, in his role as king, and the very act that puts to silence and shame all those who once mocked him is his sacrifice of himself, not as a king, but as a priest. And for Isaiah, as we, along with the kings and nations of the world, move into the second part of verse 15, it's a clarifying moment. It's a moment of realization. What does the text say? For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Israel, and indeed the world, expected a conquering king. They expected their Messiah to be a new David in the sense that he would reign wisely as a good and powerful king and that he would crush all his enemies and by extension he would crush their enemies. But as Israel and the nations feared men and kings and looked for a ruler who would free them from the same, they failed to realize what Jesus pointed out himself in his own ministry in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The great problem of these kings is that they fear man rather than God. When men can only destroy the body, but God can destroy, can destroy the entire body and soul for eternity in hell. The first need of the world, of Israel, and of these kings is not first the conquering king, though we will certainly get the conquering king when all is said and done. The first need of the world is an atoning sacrifice, a substitute to pay the price of death on our behalf so that we might go free. The doctrine of atonement is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. And with all due respect to Martin Luther may in fact be the true doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. This is why the kings and nations cease raging. They behold the servant of Yahweh who demonstrates his power as a king by sacrificing himself as a priest. They realize then that the true need of all humanity is not what they thought it was. They realize, as the psalmist said, that they must kiss the Son, lest they perish in the way. They realize that trusting in the atoning sacrifice of the servant is the only way to escape his wrath. We can observe then a very interesting linguistic transition as we move into 53.1. This transition will likely make sense to those of you who have been with us in Romans. Isaiah is placing Israel in verse 1 in contrast with the kings and nations of verse 15. The kings and nations had not heard before, 
but will look upon the servant and believe. They will see and they will understand. Israel had heard, according to verse 1. They had the prophets who were giving the report. They had Moses who had revealed God to them. And yet, the rhetorical question here is, who has believed our report? No one. The kings and nations had not heard, but will look upon the servant and believe. Israel had heard, but did not look upon the servant and believe. This is corroborated and expanded upon by Paul in Romans 9. He writes, what shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain to that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. The folly of Israel was their lack of faith. The glory of the Gentiles is their abundance of faith. What Israel had heard for so many years but failed to believe is now being delivered to the Gentiles who receive it in faith and obedience. Isaiah now turns to reveal the arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh, the servant arm, Jesus Christ. Who is he? Verse 2, we've seen him before. And Isaiah continues to weave together a robust tapestry of servantology as his character and works become increasingly evident. It's important to note another literary transition here. Isaiah was speaking in the present tense. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now he's speaking in the past tense. He describes the servant using this was language, was terminology. He grew up before him in the past tense like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately majesty or form that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected, forsaken of men. This transition in language is significant. Isaiah is now prophesying about the end of time. He is prophesying about the end of the existence of the nation of Israel as we know it. As they finally see with clear eyes their Messiah. They ought to have looked forward to his coming and by prophecies and types and shadows known him and loved him when he came and made his dwelling among them. But they did not do what they ought to have done. They should have believed him. But they beat him. They should have followed him. But they flogged him. They should have come to him. But they crucified him. I think we would all say that God would be right to reject Israel entirely and to tell them that they've lost their chance and that his covenant will now be with the Gentiles. But God is not only just. He is also merciful. 
And Isaiah has a vision of that mercy being made real in the heart of the nation of Israel at the end of all things. They did not look forward to the Messiah. They did not see him when he came. But praise God that in his mercy, Israel will one day look back and see the servant for who he is. They will one day behold him as Isaiah calls them to in verse 13. Isaiah 53 is therefore a song of repentance, a song of corporate national repentance ordained by God in his mercy and seen by Isaiah in chapter 53. Yes, Isaiah 53 teaches us about Christ. Yes, it teaches us about atonement. Yes, it teaches us about salvation. But Isaiah 53 is ultimately about hope. Hope for Israel and hope for all who, though perhaps living for years in rejection of the Messiah, eventually believe the report, see the revelation, look upon the servant, and receive salvation in him. Having dealt with his audience, Isaiah now turns his discussion to the servant arm of Yahweh in verse 2. In this prophetic future, which Isaiah is seeing, as Israel looks back upon the Messiah, what do they see? Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. This one phrase, Isaiah takes us to the wasteland of Yahweh's judgment, first described in Isaiah 1, 30 through 31. Isaiah speaks to Israel here, and he says this, For you will be like an oak whose leaf withers away, or as a garden that has no water. And the strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together. Isaiah has pronounced judgment on Israel. Israel intended to be the new Eden, this new perfect garden of God, flowing and overflowing with all the good that comes from being in the presence of the Lord. That garden of Israel is now a waterless garden, a withered tree. The garden of delight has become the garden of decay. Isaiah elaborates further on this idea in chapter 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he hoped for it to produce good grapes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God planting his people, clearing the way for them in the conquest and helping them build a city magnificent and glorious, just like the Garden of Eden. But what happens? He hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. 
So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain. No rain on it for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. There he hoped for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Real quick before we move on, do you notice the connection there? What happens when Israel sins? Briars and thorns come up. What was the curse that God gave to Adam? No longer will you work the ground in joy and simplicity, but briars and thorns will pop up. The garden has become a wasteland. Just as Eden became a wasteland, just as Israel became a wasteland, there's significance there for all of us. In Adam are world has become a wasteland the garden is a wasteland now let me help you picture this today i grew up near cortez colorado which is probably most well known as the home of mesa verde national park there are many great things about mesa verde but one of the best is the drive up to the plateau on the top literally right the plateau the mesa verde the green table Sagebrush, pinyon pine, yucca plants build a bridge between the Sonoran Desert to the south and the Rocky Mountains to the north. When the area receives five or six feet of snowfall in the winter, the table turns green. Or as the Spanish explorers would have said, La Mesa se vuelve verde. But when I was in middle school, a fire ravaged the Mesa Verde Plateau. The green table became, in a matter of hours, a blackened, ravaged wasteland. Everybody close your eyes. Come here with me in your mind. Listen. Blue skies, gray with ash. Where clouds once hovered over the land, wisps of smoke now rise. The landscape, so green with life, is now dead, lifeless, charred, black. Where you might once have inhaled deeply, taking in the pinion and the yucca and the sage, you now cover your face, coughing and wheezing, trying to expel the smoke from your lungs. Do you see that in your mind's eye? Do you feel the blackened wasteland? That is how Isaiah pictures the Garden of Israel. 
And in the midst of the wasteland is where the servant appears. And how does he appear? In the midst of the smoky, ashy, burned waste, a shoot springs forth from the stem of Jesse. It gets a little water and it grows. Perhaps it is planted beside still waters, slowly being nourished and nurtured like a branch from the root. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that this tree does, it prospers. This shoot becomes the vine and his people become the branches as they abide in him and bear much fruit. This is the tender shoot springing up in the wasteland. This is the root coming up out of the parched ground in the midst of the wasteland of his own judgment, having allowed the garden to be destroyed, Yahweh now begins again. He plants a new seed, which turns into a new shoot, which turns into a new vine. This vine does not wither, but prospers in all that he does. This new vine is the chief vine in Yahweh's vineyard, the first tree in Yahweh's garden. He is the first fruits of the new Eden, the central tree in the new paradise of God. But in the old garden, eating from this tree resulted in certain death. In the new garden, the true and better vine of John 15, the true and better tree of Psalm 1, beckons us to come and eat of his body and his blood, which is true food and true drink, John 6, and therein find not death, but life. Isaiah describes a wasteland garden in the midst of which begins to grow a tree, a vine full of new life, unquenchable life, and this life was the light of men. But the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. When the servant arm of Yahweh, the life, the light, the vine, the tree, comes into this world, according to Isaiah, what happens to him? He was despised. So when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out loudly saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. He was despised. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. So they said to him, you, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again. And immediately, a rooster crowed. They forsook him. 
being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up. And with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. He was one from whom men turned away and hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah has established the prelude to atonement, the introduction to the one passage of God's word that teaches us perhaps more about the nature of Christ's death than any other in the entire Bible. Even in this short introduction to Isaiah 53, there is much here for us. I want us to look at what Isaiah teaches us here about Christ and about salvation, and I want us to behold Christ both in his suffering and in his glory so that we might walk away changed. Eight takeaways. We'll do these quickly. What does Isaiah teach us about Christ here? Number one, Christ is the shepherd who leads his people in the new exodus. Isaiah's call to behold, to look to the shepherd who is leading his people out of slavery and into freedom is a call for us to look to Christ as our shepherd. As Israel looked to Moses for leadership, do we look to Christ for leadership? Do we look upon him as the exalted king of glory and worship and follow him? He is leading us out of the Egypt of our sin and into the land of the new Eden. So I urge you today, look to him, trust him. He will lead you safely home. That's number one. Number two, Christ's humiliation is the means of his exaltation. Isaiah couples the lofty and exalted state of the servant with his humility, with his marring. In the midst of his glory and majesty, the people are appalled by him. Isaiah, therefore, intends to teach us that the only way for Jesus to be truly glorified is for him to suffer first. As our ancient creed says, he suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day rose again, appearing to many brethren, ascended to heaven, and is now seated there at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will return to judge the living and the dead. Christ cannot rule as king if he does not first suffer as priest. I can put it no more eloquently than the great apostle. 
have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ will obtain glory, but only because he first experienced suffering. Number three, Christ's death accomplished atonement for his people. Just as the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled the people in the ancient nation of Israel, so Christ's blood sprinkles his people, providing atonement. It's important that we understand this word, atonement, and why it is important. Biblically speaking, Paul is clear. He delivered to the Corinthians as of first importance the truth that Christ died for sins. As important as Christ's life is uh, and as important as his active obedience is, it is his atoning death that is of first importance. It was of first importance for Paul and it must also be for us. Tom Schreiner says this, Penal substitutionary atonement is the heart and soul of an evangelical view of the atonement. Joel Beakey helps us. He defines penal substitutionary atonement as Christ's priestly sacrifice unto God, whereby he offered himself in the place of his people under God's law and judgment. It is substitutionary because Christ lived and died as the representative or vicarious substitute of his people before God. He further says that it is penal because the substitution pertained to God's legal judgment for sin. Beaky says this, out of his great love, God sent Christ to satisfy his justice as the substitute for his people under the law, voluntarily receiving on himself the violent penalty for their sins according to the eternal covenant of the triune God by which the Son was appointed to become a man and to act as their surety. It should have been you and me hanging on that cross but it wasn't Jesus took it all on himself as our substitute and in the most magnificent marriage of mercy and justice ever seen God looked upon Christ's sacrifice and said that is enough justice has been satisfied as Jordan Coughlin put it so beautifully and I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Keith Getty. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. My every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live.
number four, Christ's death silences his opposition. Kings shut their mouths on account of him. The reality of Christ's sacrifice is so shocking and so humiliating that a sinless person would offer his life for a sinful person that you cannot help but be silent and take notice. You can rant and rave and rage and rail against God all you want, but when it comes down to it, when you consider the weight of Christ's work, when you consider the gravity of what he did, you have to pause. You have to take notice. Jesus does not allow himself to be ignored or talked over. His sacrifice stops the noise, even for a brief moment, and causes even the most rage-filled king of this earth to stop and cry out. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for these souls. Number five, Christ's gospel will be rejected by many. Who has believed our report? Who has seen God's revelation? He came to his own, and his own received him not. They did not all heed the good news. This truth is one part heartbreaking and one part encouraging. It breaks our hearts to know that some people are so hardened toward the gospel that God will give them over in his judgment to their folly and wickedness. But it simultaneously encourages us because as we share the gospel, we can face rejection with courage, knowing that they reject us and our message because they rejected Christ and his message. Therefore, we cannot lose heart in our evangelism efforts because even though we face rejection, Christ faced it too. Number six, Christ's gospel may yet be received by those who first rejected it. In light of number five, this sixth doctrine is of great encouragement. Isaiah sees a day in which the people who once rejected Christ now look upon him in faith. 